News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's take a look at what's happening in the United States today. Possible second impeachment of the President Donald Trump getting underway today. Joining us now is our Global News Washington correspondent, Reggie Cicchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, can we start with, have you seen the statement that Melania Trump, the first lady, put out this morning? I did see it, yes. Okay, so it's it seems a bit odd, doesn't it? I mean, look, she's walking a fine line right now uh, of trying to not get in the way of what her husband has said and done, uh, what he is facing, uh, but also not getting in the way of the people that follow President Trump. She's oftentimes stood on the other side of what the president is saying. But realistically, considering this is the first we've heard from anybody inside the administration, uh, you know, it's kind of up for scrutiny no matter what it was going to say. That is so true, right? In it, she talks about the people she has sympathy for, First person she listed there was the woman who was killed, who was part of the, you know, group inside the Capitol. Last person she listed, though, was the police officer, the Capitol police officer uh, who was killed there. And I believe last time we heard the president had not reached out to the family of that police officer. And that's still the reporting this morning. We know the vice president reached out to the fallen officer. And we know it was also a fight within the White House simply to get the flag lowered to half staff in the wake of that death. This is, you know, something that's obviously dogging uh, the president's final few days on top of everything else that's surrounding him. But now to have his wife come out here, this could potentially put Trump in a position of having to come to a camera to possibly say something about anything. Right. Okay, let's talk about what's going on in Congress today then. So what's going on with this possible second impeachment? So the second impeachment is likely going to be tabled in Congress in the House tomorrow, and that's because today they are going to put legislation forward to try and get Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment to say that President Trump is unable to execute the duties. That 25th Amendment push is going to have a 24-hour time frame on it. If he does not respond by tomorrow, the impeachment legislation will be tabled. Then it's a 24-hour waiting period. We potentially could see a vote on impeachment on Wednesday. Pelosi obviously coming out here because she believes that she has the votes to support it. And what have any Republicans said about this? Look, there's a growing number of Republicans, either from the House caucus or the Senate side, that are starting to fall on the side of Democrats here. You have uh, leading Republicans like Pat Toomey, like Lisa Murkowski, saying that President Trump simply needs to resign because it is an immediate uh, kind of cure to what they see as a problem. You have other representatives uh, saying that they will back impeachment. You have some senators like Ben Sass saying that they would entertain uh, uh, articles of impeachment or an article of impeachment if it comes over. So unlike what we saw at the beginning of 2020 and the end of 2019, there is a fracture in the Republican Party. All right. So even if this passes the House, then, Reggie, is there any chance this is going to get to the Senate? They're not even sitting, right? They're not sitting, and it would require 100% uh, support for them to come back out of this pro forma session that they're in right now. Probably not going to happen. So it means that if Democrats wanted to do it, they could transmit that article on the 19th when they return. Then there are delays uh, in order to be able to get that sent over and put to the floor, which would mean that this would be during the Biden administration. But there are calls now to simply hold off on this and not transmit them until 100 days into the Biden administration to let him get a handle on things like the pandemic. So this is something that's likely going to to stick around for weeks, if not months to come. Okay, and where is President Trump during all this? 
Good question. He's a bunker mentality right now. He hasn't been seen. Uh, he's been, you know, heard from just by the people that are close to him inside the White House. There's reporting just in the last couple of minutes that the president might try to find a camera today to make a comment about big tech, obviously after Twitter banned him and after Parler was shut down over the weekend. Uh, you know, all of these Republicans are now griping that they have no way of talking to the American people. We need to point out here, they all have taxpayer funded uh, uh, press offices and can hold a press briefing whenever they want. I know that just amused me so much. I saw a Republican lawmaker on CNN complaining about that. And I thought, but you're on TV right now. They're you're on, on national TV complaining about this. Yes, with with their base watching. But again, they can go to a camera at any point. The reason they don't yeah. do it oftentimes with their press office is because that's going to put them on the record in a public setting, which will likely then be held into the records. Oftentimes, they're simply not using them because what they need to say isn't true. Okay, so they what they want is the ease of being able to say whatever they want whenever they want. Which is why they liked Parler because it was sort of this, you know, you know, no holds barred site for people to go and talk about, but that's why Parler was partly shut down because it was accused of inciting the violence uh, that we saw last week and for pushing violence that they're now prepping for in DC and across all 50 states between now and inauguration. So this is kind of a dangerous situation Republicans have put themselves in. Right, it's, what is this January 17th date that they talk about well look it's january 17th it's january 20th they are calling for uh essentially a repeat of what we saw at the capitol building at state capitals across the country but there is a large push now there was a video pushed to parlor before it shut down that was th this dramatic rise in music with this violent rhetoric piecing oh, together no. things president trump has said to try and have another storming of the capitol uh on the 20th so oh. the fbi law enforcement they're ready well we'll see okay reggie thank you thank you this is Mornings with Simi. One of the stories that we have continued to follow through the pandemic is relief for people who have student loans. There was supposed to be pandemic relief for those people, but that hasn't actually worked out that way. Seemingly random charges showed up on personal bank accounts, and there is no shortage of horror stories from people who've been trying to use the National Student Loan Center's customer service department. So joining us to talk about what they have been seeing and whether they think relief is in site. We have Nicole Brianis, the National Deputy Chairperson of the Canadian Federation of Students. Nicole, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. It doesn't sound like these stories are going away, Nicole, even though the federal government keeps saying, oh, it's getting better, it's getting better, is it? That's just not the case. You know, we continually are hearing that students are struggling and trying to navigate their federal loans. Uh, we hear countless um, instances of students being wrongfully charged, of having their banks be put into overdraft because of these wrong charges. Uh, it's a very slow uh, and difficult process to really get support in and rectifying these situations, too. So, you know, on top of having these huge amounts of debt that students are trying to navigate. They're also trying to navigate the stresses of all these mis of all the misconduct, honestly, that's being done within the um, Student Loan Center. Right. Is there any similarity to the problems that people are having, or is it all sorts of different stuff? So a lot of what we've been hearing um, so far, at least, is uh, that overdraft uh, that students are being put into, because what's happening is that um, improper payments are being taken, and, and the loans office will correct this. They, they, rec uh, the, they recognize that it will be an issue, and they do correct it, but then students are still left with those charges on their bank accounts, uh, and that's not something that should be put on the onus of the students to have to correct either. Right. Is it, are they able to get through to talking to somebody, too? I know that was a big problem. 
that's been a huge issue. And I do know that the National Student Loan Center um, has, you know, introduced some new uh, implements that should hopefully help this along. Uh, they've introduced, you know, some online features where students can chat, uh, hopefully more immediately with people who can assist them through the process. But previously, what we've been hearing is that students have been having to go to the members of parliament, um, really emailing multiple and countless times, multiple calls. Uh, it's very time-consuming and very overwhelming. We've had many students reaching out to us to try to support in this process, too. Now, I know one of the other things that we talked to the federal minister, Carla Qualtro, about was interest charges on the federal portion of these student loans. She told us that, oh, that's going to be halted. But on their site right now, it's showing that it's still listed at 2.45%. Well, what have you heard? Yeah, so this has been, again, another confusing uh, situation in terms of those student loans that are taking place and that, you know, we're hoping at this point that uh, these pauses of interest should be in place by April. During the fall economic statement, um, it was stated that this was something that was going to be introduced, but the timeline hadn't been specified on this. So, you know, when students were first looking at what was supposed to be a moratorium until May of 2021, in which all of their student loans would be forgiven until that time, as was previously seen in the pandemic, uh, it was very disappointing, number one, to only see that interest would be halted rather than all of the loan payments. And number two, that there is no real timeline in place about when they can expect to have this relief come to them. Has there been any discussion with the federal government about improving the situation, Nicole? Like, are they aware of the problem? So we did meet with Minister Coltrow's office after the fall economic statement. Um, it was stated that there would be more relief to come. Um, that wasn't specified in which way that would look uh, for students. Um, and really, we were told to just try to, we really just asked to be patient, which is something that students have been doing now since April, and they have yet to receive any significant relief. Uh, so the government really needs to be working faster and harder right now to prioritize students and ensure that they are in a safe and sound manner to be able to continue to engage with their education and their economy, ultimately, to be able to help regrow Canada together. Yeah. Nicole, what are you hearing from students then? How difficult is it for them right now? I mean, is it online learning? Are they in class or student loans? Like there's a lot going on. It's exhausting, uh, I would say, to, be, to say the least, you know, extremely overwhelming. Um, we're really seeing a rise in mental health uh, concerns uh, amongst students. You know, there's not enough support on campus uh, when it comes to the types of resources that are available. So, you know, in addition to even the financial relief that students have been desperately asking for, now they're also asking for, you know, extensions on their assignments. They're asking, uh, you know, for more time to be given to complete their projects. Uh, they're asking for, you know, compassionate grading is something that institutions need to start looking at now, in addition to the government support that can be made available and should be made available through this financial le- relief. So there really are a number of factors that students are needing support in, uh, and it's not enough for just one sector to be looking at it. It really needs to be a holistic approach in ensuring that students are being supported throughout the pandemic. Uh, is there a concern about, you know, keeping students in the post-secondary system too? Like are a lot of them just thinking, you know, at this point, this is too hard to finish this degree? So that is a concern that we've been hearing um, financially, for sure. You know, students are sometimes having to take on now uh, extra forms of work if they're even able to find it because we recognize that, you know, students are oftentimes caregivers as well. So in trying to support their loved ones, uh, this is another, uh, you know, another responsibility that are being put upon them. Um, And we also know for international students. Many of these students aren't even able to study right now because if they weren't able to return to the country, uh, some institutions aren't allowing distance, study, distance education from another country. So, <clears throat> sorry. So this is a concern that's ongoing now, and these students don't even know if they're going to be able to continue their education. In addition to the domestic students who are struggling financially uh, as well as emotionally, in, in terms of navigating their studies. Yeah, I wondered about that. So, like 2020, they, people managed to stick it through. Is 2021 when people are going to realize they have to make a decision on this? 
it could very well be. Um, we're still, you know, waiting to hear even if institutions will be on, in person or online again come the fall and winter semester for next year. So I think that'll also be telling in the ability for some students to be able to continue their education as well. Uh, so it's a really, just a, unfortunately, a really big waiting game, which is because there hasn't been that sound investment made in supporting students. So now is really the time. Uh, you know, it's been almost a year at this point that students mm-hmm. have been waiting for any adequate relief. So the government needs to start actually investing in, in what they say they care about uh, and, and showing students that they are valued and that they will be able to continue their studies moving forward. And what's the best way for the government to do that, do you think? So I think grants uh, is a huge factor that can be uh, expanded to ensure that more students are able to access this as well as ensure that, you know, that is money that students will be able to keep uh, in order to supporting themselves throughout the, uh, through pursuing their education. Um, and another one, you know, this is something that's going to help everyone, I think, is introducing paid sick days. Uh, oftentimes we know that young people are the ones that are working those frontline jobs. And when these are sectors that aren't, you know, having adequate health care, adequate uh, ways to be able to keep yourself and your loved ones around you safe or your coworkers. Uh, this is also something that impacts the ability to continue your education as well when you're not able to take that time to protect yourself or protect those around you. So I think those are two really big areas that need to be invested in, and that would do a lot uh, in working towards ensuring that students are able to keep themselves and everyone around them safe as well as to continue their studies. I'll keep talking about it. Nicole, thank you for your time. Best of luck. Of course. Thank you so much, Simi. Have a great day. You too. That's Nicole Brannis, who's a the National Deputy Chairperson with the Canadian Federation of Students. They are still struggling. They still need pandemic relief for student loan holders. Hard to get a hold of somebody if you are trying to talk to somebody at the National Student Loan Centre. Uh, there's still being weird charges coming up on people's bank accounts. Essentially, there is no shortage of horror stories from people who are trying, some students who are trying to get this worked out. And I think the important point there to note is that, you know what, we haven't fully seen how this is going to shake out yet with that demographic of people who are kind of still struggling to stay in university or college. Uh, Maybe they figured they could tough it out for 2020. They would see what 2021 holds. Now here we are, and it doesn't look like things are changing so far into this year. So what is that going to mean for these students and post-secondary institutions? If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Vaccines, of course, are such a hot topic right now. And in fact, a Canadian-made vaccine could be on the horizon too. That's if everything goes according to plan. But it isn't like the ones that we have seen rolling out across Canada until now. Let's find out why. Global News investigative correspondent Carolyn Jarvis joins us now with more. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning, Simi. So what do we know about this Canadian vaccine? Well, it is a completely new approach to making a vaccine. It's from company Medicago based in Quebec City, and they're using plants to create its vaccine candidate for COVID-19. So they use the leaves of what's called Nicotiana benthamiana. There's a mouthful for you on a Monday morning. It's a cousin of the tobacco plant, and they insert the genetic sequence for the COVID-19 spike protein. It's the leaves of this plant make the key protein that you need in a vaccine. And the results from the phase one of its clinical trials were very promising. And they think that they will have a successful candidate uh, by the second part of this year that could be rolling out in Canada if approved by Health Canada. Okay, so where are the complications? Well, the complications are manufacturing. I mean, there's obviously the delay in getting it done. Nobody's been as quick out of the gate as the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine as well as the uh, Moderna one. The complications are that 
Uh, years ago, they asked the government is consistently for funding to have a manufacturing site in our country, but the money didn't come. Ironically, they did get funding from the United States. So they developed uh, what is primarily a research and development a manufacturing plant in North Carolina. And if uh, this vaccine is approved by Health Canada, the bulk of the initial doses will actually come from the states because the U.S. funded the Canadian company in time, not Canada. Canada has now come through with a huge chunk of change, $173 million for Medicago. But because manufacturing plants take years to build, it's not going right. to be online in time. I should mention as well that Carolyn's got a great story about this on globalnews.ca this morning. But Carolyn, what about the ties to big tobacco? Well, uh, this is a split ownership company. Two-thirds of it is owned by a major pharmaceutical company called Mitsubishi Tanaba Pharma. It's based in Osaka, Japan. But it's one-third ownership is Philip Morris International. Philip Morris, the cigarette maker. Uh, and that's not perhaps the most traditional yeah. ownership structure for a healthcare company, especially given that it recently announced, Medicago recently announced that it was a partner with GlaxoSmithKline in making its vaccine. So you don't often see big pharma and big tobacco, one that makes smoking cessation products like Nicorette and the uh, Nicoderm patch and the other one that makes cigarettes coupled together. And so when that partnership with GSK was announced back in July, uh, at the bottom of a press release, Medicago signaled that its ties to Philip Morris may soon be ending, that Philip Morris would be, that Medicago would be seeking perhaps new owners for those Philip Morris shares. But as it stands right now, one third of its company is owned by a cigarette maker. And that's been a source of friction for the company over a number of years. They've had challenges, they say, in uh, getting formal invitations to WHO meetings, which has a strict policy on not engaging with non-state actors that might be connected with tobacco companies. Um, the WHO defends that they've always invited Medicago and they've had a seat at the table, which they eventually got. But, you know, insiders who we spoke with, both current and former members of Medicago, said to me that it's been very challenging having um, corporate mm-hmm. backers that come from big tobacco when you're trying to make a healthcare product. But they do say that they don't believe that this is going to thwart them from right. their ultimate goal and their eye on the prize, which is a vaccine. What an interesting story. All right, Carolyn, thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks to me. That's Global News investigative correspondent Carolyn Jarvis talking about Canada's COVID-19 vaccine contender from a company called Medicago. For more on this, you can read the complete story that Carolyn worked on at globalnews.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about the gun violence that our communities are seeing in recent weeks. Just this past weekend, that violence left one young man dead, another injured. That was two separate shootings in Richmond and Coquitlam. And these shootings come just days after high-profile gangster Gary Kang was gunned down in his family's home in South Surrey. So what is going on out there? Well, joining us to talk about this increase in violence and the links to local gangs is retired BPD officer and gang expert Doug Spencer. Doug, thanks for being with us. No problem. Can you think of a time when we've ever seen the situation like this before? Yeah, it usually happens in kind of 10-year cycles. Um, We had a, a number of shootings involving Kang and their crew and some public warnings were put out. And prior to that, it would be the shooting and uh, the Bacon Brother up in the Kelowna Casino and stuff. It's just kind of a changing of the guard where they kind of flex their muscles 
yeah. to secure their drug lines. Is there anything then that law enforcement can do at this point? Um, yeah, it's kind of hit and miss. I mean, they work really hard trying to do it, but uh, to know where these guys are going to shoot one another, it, it's just uh, like a needle in a haystack. Right. Um, you know, you, you try, you get sources and you try and get information and stuff, but they can shoot one another wherever they find one another. So, uh, which happened in the casino shooting, right? It just happened to be in front of the casino up there. So, um, yeah, and, and it really puts the public at risk for sure. Yeah, do they just, is it because they have no fear of repercussions that they just operate with impunity like that? And And what can we do to change that? Yeah, I think it. You know, it's a, a community solves problems like that. You know, for years the judges in BC have not used the uh, five years on top of criminal offense uh, legislations that that's there. So, you know, if you use a firearm in the commission of an offense, you should be getting five years on top of your original sentence. So, there's a a consequence for these young guys running around getting caught with a gun. Now, when you've talked to them, and I'm sure you have in the past, Doug, like, are they aware? Do they do they realize the kind of risk that they are running that somebody from another gang can just come and gun them down in their parents' house if need be? Ian, no, they're really naive. All they see is this goal at the end of the road, which they think is full of riches and stuff. But, I mean, they're the, the guys getting killed are usually the ones on the street selling the drugs. They're not the patch-wearing hell's angels who never touch anything. They get other people to do their dirty work. So they get all these young guys to take the chances, do the shootings, and, of course, they're right in the crosshairs of a rifle themselves. And, you know, not really realizing they, like most kids, they think they're invincible. It won't happen to me, Mm -hmm. right? But then they know, or is that just the glamorous side of things, that they might be in some kind of a shootout? Yeah, it it is certainly uh, glamorous in their their eyes. In their eyes, yeah. You know, it's like they've watched a a bad movie, and oh, that's what's going to happen. Nobody will kill me. But the movie they should watch is Scarface. That I've seen that play out a hundred times in the Lower Mainland, where the you know you you get to be the leader. Yeah. The problem is the other guys in your gang want to be the leader too, and how they get to be it is to finish you off. I guess, so, Doug, what happens is like we've seen this happen over and over again. We know how this story ends. Why don't the people who are joining this gang know that too? Yeah, it, that therein lies the uh, the puzzle, Simeon. I'll tell you, I don't get it because it's obvious, especially this week. You know, one a day. Somebody yeah. with common sense would be hiding and not be out in the public because they could be next, right? They, they just, they don't get it. In a lot of cases, the parents, too, are oblivious to what their kid's doing, right? They're driving around in a $60,000 SUV and they're not working. Time to wake up, folks, right? Yeah, you don't have to give your kid 20 bucks. But, Doug, and, we've, been ta- uh, we've been telling people this for decades, right? I mean, you were talking about the cycles. I was thinking back to uh, Rondo Sanj, Bindi Johal, mid-1990s, same thing, city streets. Yeah, you know, and even today, I still run into parents 
who went to school with Bindi, or and it, he kind of put out this, you know, all these young South Asian guys were kind of looking up to him, like, oh, he's got all this status, right? He's a big hero in the public's eye. Well, look what happened to him, right? They they just don't get it. So then, and how do we, how do we combat that? We've been trying to combat that for decades now. Yeah, you know, we have a number of different. Uh, programs at Odd Squad where we get role model kids to mentor the other kids and we use physical literacy so we get them physically involved in workouts with judo and other stuff and as we we start to form a bond with them and these mentors form bonds they, they teach them and tell them hey this is how I became successful right it's not driving around in a fancy car selling drugs Right. But getting that message through, it sounds like it's just still difficult in this day and age. Yeah, you do whatever you can. There's a number of good programs out there. Uh, The biggest one, though, I think, is getting them physically involved in positive activities, being around positive role models, being in, in positive peer groups. Because, you know, a number of cases I've seen, the one brother is great, the daughter's great, but that one black sheep kid has got into the wrong group of peers, and they take them down that road that, uh, in some cases, they just don't come back from. Yeah, that's the frustration for families then, too. Like, for parents who need more information about this, maybe what you've talked about here, Doug, kind of rings a bell for them. Is is there a place where they can go get more information? Yeah, I, Odd Squad, I've done, done a number of parental uh, presentations because, you know, especially newly immigrated families, they really don't know what their kid's up to or the dangers here. So we go out and we, we tell the uh, parents, this is what happened. You know, this is what your kid may be involved in. This is what to look for. So we do virtual online presentations. Given the, the COVID yeah. thing, we can't go in person. And uh, they're really successful. If you give parents the information and you give the kids the information, you know, maybe they can do something to make the kid make a good decision. So right. Maybe even watch it together. It totally. Yeah. We've done presentations to parents and kids. So, you know, just look us up at oddsquad.com and we'll uh, garner our presentation to you. All right. Sounds like a plan. Doug, thank you. No problem. That is Doug Spencer, retired Vancouver Police Department officer and gang expert. That is a good discussion for parents. Like even if you're slightly suspicious about new friends, maybe your activities that your child has been up to, they're a little bit older and they've got the flashy cars. And as Doug said, they don't actually seem to have a job. Yeah, that should all ring a bell because it's, as Doug pointed out, every 10 years or so, we seem to, even less sometimes, we seem to have this outbreak of violence. And right now, we are having a lot of it. Just this past weekend, one young man dead, another injured. That was two separate shootings. Uh, last week, of course, it was the death of high-profile gangster Gary Kang, who was gunned down in his family's house in South Surrey. When is this going to end? This is Mornings with Simi. So the city of Vancouver has this phone line, 311, and it's kind of a 
a catch-all for all municipal services. I mean, if you have a question, you know, something, anything, you just call 311 and they sort it out for you or they point you in the right direction. Seems easy enough, right? But they get some calls about stuff that you would never expect. You think those calls to 911 that they put out every year are crazy? Some of the ones to 311 are equally so. So they said that the most frequently asked questions to 311 relate to property tax. Makes sense, right? The empty homes tax. Okay. Homeowner grants, right? All interesting questions. But they have just released a list of some of the strangest inquiries that they received at 311 in the past year. Remember, this is 311, the city of Vancouver's uh, catch-all phone number for people to ask questions. Some of the weirdest ones. This one, I don't even know where to start. Can you remove a dog from my bedroom? A friend left it, but I don't know who. Now, when I heard that, I thought, well, that sounds like something from The Hangover, doesn't it? Except it was a tiger in The Hangover. Uh, Just so you know, they did resolve it. They sent animal services to the location to help out with that. But yeah, weird one. Uh, Okay, and here's another one that I thought was interesting. There are some apple trees in your, I'm sorry, there are some trees in your open data set that are incorrectly listed as apple trees. I've been eating the fruit and they are definitely not apples. Okay, why are you eating the fruit then if you don't know what it is? Apparently they were unable to confirm what it was that the caller had actually eaten. And here's one that you just know, this wouldn't surprise me if more than one person believed this next one was true. It it sounds like an urban legend that's probably been spread around. I heard we're allowed to dump one mattress and one piece of furniture in a back alley each year. Can we? No, is the answer to that, very simply. Dumping any items in back alleys is illegal all year long. Doesn't stop people from doing it, though. I think sometimes people put a piece of furniture back there thinking, oh, somebody's just going to come along and take this, which does happen, right? Put a decent piece of furniture out there. Somebody might come along and take it to reuse it somewhere else. But when it doesn't, well, you got to move it. You can't just leave it out there. Uh, Some people, though, do think that they can, I guess, do that. And uh, no, you are not allowed to dump one mattress and one piece of furniture in a back alley every year. So staff has also reported that this 311 service had more than 950,000 interactions last year. Uh, Most of those over the phone, although you can also use the smartphone app that they have created as well. I've used both. They are both very handy, but man, that is a lot of phone calls for them. This is Mornings with Simi. Sure doesn't sound like a lot of Canadians are particularly happy with how the vaccine rollout has gone across the country. We'll have more on that about how Canadians are feeling coming up in a few minutes. But public health is also faced with another issue, and that is vaccine hesitancy. SafeCare BC has released a survey of long-term care workers that came out in the last month or so, and that survey found that only 57% of the respondents wanted to get the shot. Now, that could be a big problem considering how long-term care home residents are particularly vulnerable to the virus. So what more can be done about this? How do we address this? Joining us is Krishana Senkar, who's a doctoral researcher at the University of Toronto in the Faculty of Medicine. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Simi. Thank you for having me. Is this something that you think is common across Canada among long-term care home residents? 
Well, definitely, I would say that's the case, especially uh, considering the numbers you just quoted out in BC. We also have uh, similar types of numbers coming out of uh, in Ontario as well. So there seems to be quite a bit of hesitancy among the um, the support staff at the long-term care facilities. And why do we think that is? So there are several reasons, and and. Uh, myself and Dr. Tara Moriarty, who started a nightly Zoom session this week um, to uh, address this concern, is uh, a few of the um, healthcare workers and, and support staff from the long-term care facilities who join our calls have several uh, concerns. And so there are concerns around the information of the vaccine itself. It seems as though there's a lack of information that are reaching them. So they come with a lot of questions around behind the science for the vaccine. Um, so that information is lacking, number one. And number two, another another major issue is the fact that uh, because of historical issues within the medical system um, among the minority and racialized communities, there's a lot of distrust um, among these com- amongst these communities. And so I think it's really important that we're able to um, effectively communicate with them and listen and validate their concerns, but also let them know about the science behind the vaccine. So I've heard this criticism as well for public health is that we're surprised that there isn't more of a campaign that public health and governments have launched here to talk about this. Yes, exactly. And and we all feel the same. And, and this is exactly why... Um, independent scientists and researchers and healthcare uh, professionals um, are, are joining our calls right now. And that's because there's, there hasn't been a concerted effort around a vaccine education program. So in a few weeks or very shortly, um, a group of us uh, that include these independent scientists and healthcare workers as well as communicators are, are coming together to uh, release uh, information around vaccines, around the COVID-19 vaccine in particular, as well as around COVID-19, because we see there is a gap here that needs to be filled. I just find this so interesting, though, Krishana, because in reality, this vaccine has probably been more widely talked about than any vaccine we've ever had before. Yes, I I completely agree with you. And so it is interesting that there is a lot of information floating around there. But but the problem seems to be in the way in which the information has been communicated, who's communicating it, and how it's reaching different communities. So, for example, a lot of the information is currently available in English. Um, some of it will be translated into French, but we are missing a large majority of our population because many people speak other languages. They may not, English is not their first language, they may not fully understand right. it properly. And so we are missing a huge per, uh, percent of the population when we are not able to communicate within their own language. So is this something that do you think health authorities should have foreseen prior to the rollout? Like, should it have coincided with an education campaign? 100%. There's no doubt about that. Um, Especially knowing that this vaccine was coming, this should have been part of the rollout strategy, is to have a vaccine education campaign. It's no... it's no wonder that uh, there's hesitancy among a lot of people. And this is not the first time. This is not new. We know that there are a lot of people, even in the past, who are hesitant around vaccinations. And so having come up with a vaccine within the time that we have during a pandemic, I think it was extremely important that this program um, had been rolled out the same time that the vaccine came. Do we know what works? Like, do we know what does convince people to you know, get the vaccine or change their mind? Yeah, that's a good question. And so at least within our nightly Zoom calls, what we try to do is, number one, we're not trying to force anyone to take the vaccine. But what we are trying to do is to ensure not 
not only that we supply the scientific information and the background behind the vaccine, but also I think it's really important that we listen and validate people's concerns. And I think a large part of that is missing within a lot of communications. You need to validate the concerns that people have. They have a lot of questions that are very good questions. They just need to be answered and they need to be answered well. Um, we also need to speak um, to people in a language that they can understand. So, for example, a lot of the materials available are heavily laden with scientific jargon. And so we need to use um, relevant analogies, for example, so people can better understand what it is that we're talking about and what it is that they need to make an informed decision about. Okay, so do you feel like, though, Krishana, like our public health authorities listening because it feels like they better get on this? They definitely need to get on this. Um, I have been hearing that there will be a launch of a vaccine education program um, through public health in in the coming weeks or sometime in spring. Um, So I hope that they are listening. I think they're hearing it widely. Uh, We do know that this is a massive problem. And so we do need to tackle this issue. And even if it's not tackled at a public health level, a lot of, like I mentioned before, independent scientists and healthcare professionals are doing their best to actually fill this gap. All right, Krishana, thank you so much for talking to us about it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate your time. Krishana Sankar, who's a doctoral researcher at the University of Toronto in the Faculty of Medicine, uh, they are talking about and researching why it is that there seems to be some vaccine hesitancy among long-term care home employees. Uh, And yet so many other people are saying, I want the shot, I want the shot. But, you know, a Safe Care BC survey showed that only 57% of the respondents, people who work in long-term care homes, wanted to get it. So what is that disconnect? This is Mornings with Simi. Restaurant owners are not happy, and they still want an apology from Dr. Bonnie Henry after they were left scrambling to accommodate those new health restrictions that were announced just the day before New Year's Eve. And we're still hearing about the economic impacts of that, too. So joining us now is Miru Dalwala, who is the co-owner at Vidge's Restaurant, and she has more to say on this. Good morning, Miru. Hi, Simi. Now, thanks for joining us on this. Can you tell us what kind of an impact did those New Year's Eve restrictions have on your restaurant? So first of all, I just want to say, I want to remind everybody that we restaurants have been deemed safe places by the public health office. Otherwise, we would have been shut down. But we have been open since May, and we have been following for the most part, All I mean, we have, but like most restaurants, I mean, we've been asked for the regulations and all the safety protocols we have been following, and restaurants have not been found to be hotspots for any sort of COVID infection. So we consider ourselves as part of the team that is keeping our society calm, safe, and kind. And so what happened on New Year's Eve is we had no indication that, you know, anything was going to change, that the rules were going to change. And planning a restaurant for dine-in is extremely different than planning a restaurant for takeout. And so all of us restaurants, for the most part, you know, people wanted to eat out. People wanted to have some form of a semblance of festivity on New Year's Eve. And so everybody made reservations for restaurants, and we were prepared for dine-in all the way through 10 p.m. And then at the very last minute, um, uh, alcohol sales were restricted to 8 p.m. So a lot of restaurants just lost their 8 p.m. sitting altogether which means a lot of inventory, alcohol inventory is wasted. Um, we don't have money right now to sit on inventory. Food is wasted. Staff, what do you do with the staff? Um, customers, a lot of customers don't wish to go out and spend money 
after 8 p.m. if they can't, especially on New Year's Eve, if they can't enjoy a glass of champagne or something. Um, so we didn't have enough time to make that big adjustment. And what ended up happening is, like I said, some restaurants lost a lot of revenue and sat on inventory and wasted food. And other restaurants ended up losing reservations, but then having to accommodate an absolute flood of takeout. And that was so hard. And customers were unhappy. We didn't even know what to do. We didn't know what hit us. And it was so unnecessary because on the one hand, we are deemed safe to remain open. On the other hand, when it is our night to shine safely, our wings were clipped. Right. Uh, and so did that, did you have a lot of cancellations on that? Did people decide to not come to your restaurant? Well, we had a lot. Well, you know what? We had a lot of confusion. Vidges, we kind of lucked out. We had cancellations after 8 p.m., but not enough necessarily that we could have accommodated all the takeout that came. On the one hand, don't get me wrong, I am grateful that people wanted to support Vidges. What happened was Vidges and a lot of most of us restaurants were, were not able to provide the service. When you're dining in at a restaurant, you do your appetizers, you have a drink, there's some time, then you have your entree. That's how the kitchen works. When you're doing takeout, everything has to be done bang right at once in one bag. You need a place to keep everything. Then you've got all the drivers lining up. That's not safe on New Year's Eve. Can you have an image of all the DoorDash, Uber, skip the dishes, drivers frustrated and lining up because they're all late? And it was really havoc. Right. Miru, what do you think would help then in the future? Like, what do you want from public health officials? Yeah. So the reason why we're bringing up, we're, you know, 13 restaurants. The reason why we are bringing up New Year's Eve, you know, we were told, oh, it's just two hours. Absolutely not. Now we've got Dine Out coming up. Dine Out on um, February 5th. So the current regulations are ending midnight February 5th. So what do we do? Do we start Dine Out? Do we start preparing special menus for Dine Out or do we not? Valentine's Day is coming up, February 14th, big night for restaurants. So either shut us down if you don't have faith in us. We're fine. We wish to be safe. We do not wish to participate in creating any sort of danger in terms of COVID-19. We're stressed. We're human beings. We're mothers. We're fathers, brothers, and sisters. We have parents. Um, we, we don't wish to put ourselves and our staff in any right. danger either if we're deemed that way. But if Valentine's Day is coming up and dine out is coming up, We need to be heard. We need to be consulted. We need to be respected, most of all, and be told in a timely manner. We're resilient people, but we we can't function at this very, very last minute slamming of the door. So this is a heads up, but you're saying as public health officials, tell us now what you've got planned. Consult with us. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a virologist. So I seek expertise if I would need to know that kind of information, right? So restaurants are such a big part of Vancouver, of tourism, of our local culture, of our society. And to not consult with us, but tell us we're safe in the meantime, um, it's very disrespectful. And so if the public health office really wants a calm, kind, and safe society, then we need leadership that's going to be firm and kind and respectful right because if we citizens especially well i can only speak for the restaurant industry right now um if our industry is not going to feel respected how can we remain calm and we are certainly doing our very best to remain safe we weren't going to have people on new year's eve mingling and running around drunk and hugging each other we would lose our licenses like that so we were actually a very safe place for people to go 
Well, Miru, thank you very much for that. We appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. An outbreak of COVID-19 on a First Nations reserve on Vancouver Island has elicited some very disappointing reactions from local residents in that area. And to the point where North Cowichan Mayor Al Sebring has posted a heartfelt message uh, really condemning the attitudes that he has been seeing. So we asked him to come on the show this morning to talk about why he felt compelled to speak up. And he joins us now. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Simi. Good morning. What happened? Like, when did you first notice some of these comments? Some of the stuff started cropping up late last week. You know, crazy comments. Uh, we have a, a, a large First Nations community here. Couch and Tribes is, is the largest First Nation in BC, both in terms of population and, and area. And a lot of those folks work in community. They work in retail and different things. And, you know, I'm seeing posts like, well, why doesn't Superstore just get rid of those First Nations employees till COVID is over? Um, really? You know, there was there was one, that, you know, we should just, these First Nations folks should just go back to trapping and fishing and hunting and, and leave us all alone. I mean, it's like, what? And a lot of this came about because Cowichan Tribes, uh, as a First Nations health authority, has the authority and they, they're using it to be very transparent about the number of COVID cases in their community. That's different than it is in the rest of community. I mean, I, as a mayor, don't know how many cases of COVID are in North Cowichan. The, the, right. the health authority just isn't telling me that. But First Nations Health Authority has that uh, option, and they're being very transparent, and this is how they're being rewarded for that transparency. It's just over the, over, way over the top. Oh, that's ridiculous. So you just made an excellent point there, though, is that we don't know how many COVID-19 cases are actually in our community. Our, the regular health authority isn't telling us that. First Nations Health Authority is going above and beyond in its honesty, and that's what people have to say about it? Well, this is it. I mean, you know, and, and I, I'm not criticizing Bonnie Henry. She's been doing a hell of a job. But, you know, at some point, to me, it would make sense to say, let's be totally transparent across the board, because that would take the focus off the the First Nations piece and say, you know, it's everywhere. We, we do have X number of cases in the city of Duncan or in North Cowichan or right. in Saanich or wherever. And, but instead of that, what we have right now is a system that, that sort of necessarily puts the focus on the First Nations uh, because they're, they're being transparent. And, you know, there's, there's other stuff. I mean, since I put this post up, and this was yesterday morning at 10 o'clock, and I've had like 140,000 hits on it. I mean, being popular on social media is like being a millionaire with Monopoly money. It doesn't really matter, but it's <laughs> resonating. But yeah. um, some other stuff has come to light. I mean, we've had uh, one situation that I saw where a First Nations lady said, you know, I had a dentist appointment and they called me to confirm the appointment, but they asked me, do you live on reserve? And she said, yeah, I do. And they said, well, you know, maybe, maybe we better put this appointment off until COVID is done. What? That's not, an, that, that's not an appropriate question. The appropriate questions are, do you have symptoms? Have you traveled outside the country? Are you under a quarantine order? In that case, for everybody, you know what? Probably a good idea that you wait. But when you make a provision of a service contingent on your residency, when that residency is, by its very nature, race-based, if you're on the reserve, that's a problem. Yeah. What has the reaction been like, though? Like, what kind of comments are you getting from people when you put this out there? Interestingly, not a single negative comment. And that's been heartening. I mean, you know, the the, the post has been shared 2,500 times and I'm getting emails, I'm getting texts, I'm getting stuff from all kinds of people. And to me, it's kind of sad, even that I'm on the Simi Sarah show and talking about this. I mean, all I'm saying is, 
come on, folks, let's treat everybody equally. And all and this is newsworthy, yeah. and it's and it's I know. big. I mean, what? Well, it just makes me so sad when de- that de- dentist story that you just described there. That dentist's office doesn't know if there's a case next door or you know next door to them where they live. They don't know, but apparently, ignorance is bliss for them. Oh yeah, that's that's kind of what it looks like. Yeah, I know. So I guess the thing with this, Mayor Sebring, then is because you did what you did, it makes people stop and think about it, right? Yeah, I, I guess it does, and, and for that, I'm grateful. What kind of reaction have you gotten, though, from the First Nation Reserve? I, it's interesting. I'm going to reach out to Chief Seymour later today once I get done with all this media stuff. I got more. T- I get two more TV interviews. I had CBC this morning, but when I get a minute, I'm going to call Chip, uh, the, the, the chief on reserve. We meet regularly every couple of weeks. Uh, we're kind of unique here in the Cowichan Valley. We have something called the Leadership Group, which is the MP and the MLA and the head of the uh, school district and the chief and the mayors, you know, and we all get together and we talk about this. And this came up at the most recent leadership group meeting on Friday where, where people were saying, you know what, this this narrative is starting to become troublesome. And we as a group uh, decided we were all going to do our own little bit to speak out. And for some reason, my post got more traction than anybody else's, and that's just life. But um, I haven't spoken to, to Chief Seymour specifically on this. Interestingly, the leadership group, as it is formulated today, started around the racism question about a year and a half ago on on a different file. So, yeah. Yeah, I remember that, actually. Well, Mayor Sebring, thank you for joining us this morning to talk about it. I hope it goes better. Thank you very much, Jimmy. All right. Have a good day. That's Al Sebring, Mayor of North Cowichan. Uh, Boy, people just don't get the irony sometimes, do they? Right? The fact that the First Nations Health Authority over there on Vancouver Island is being way more transparent than, say, Fraser Health or Vancouver Coastal Health, and yet people's reaction to that is to be racist about it? It just seems ridiculous. You, the, the problem with the stats that we're getting is that you don't know. There could be cases in your community, could be cases in your neighborhood, your street, your next-door neighbor. You don't get that information. First Nations Health Authority is providing that information to people. Hopefully they don't stop because of this and hopefully people will think twice uh, about the kinds of reactions that they have been getting. And good for Mayor Sebring for bringing this up and talking about it.